HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. With more than 30 weekly podcasts, HRN has something for every food lover. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners tuning in from 165 countries around the world, about a million listens a month. And today, I know everybody is waiting to see what we're going to talk about on Tech Bites, the weekly show where we look at the intersection of food and technology. And today, that intersection is happening in the lab where they're using CRISPR to slice cow DNA and make the future beef burger. It's very sci-fi, and it's happening right now. So it's not the future, it's today. We've talked so much about lab-grown, plant-based versions of animal product foods like chicken and beef and dairy. We've been talking about those things on this show for a long, long time. And as the category and science evolves, there are more and more options in the marketplace and more and more options being developed to hit the marketplace this year, next year, and in years to come. And like any category that becomes more and more popular and and has a lot of growth, we see a lot of things that start to replicate each other. So it's not often we we come across something that has a little bit of a new point of view, and sci-fi foods is one of them. And I was fascinated by the opportunity to talk with a super scientist who's in the lab doing all these things and really get an understanding of what it all actually means and what they're actually doing. Because sometimes it's hard to follow just the headlines. So today, I'm really happy to be sharing this conversation with Dr. Kasha Gora, who is co-founder and CTO of Sci-Fi Foods. Um, thank you for calling in today. Thank you, Jennifer. My pleasure to be here. We had a great conversation a couple weeks ago to sort of set the stage for what we were going to talk about today. And I will tell everyone at the top of the show, we are going to absolutely run out of time. We're going to run out of time to go into the deep, deep details of this because it's so dense and complex with all the different things that we're doing they're doing. Um, But we're going to try and start at the bird's eye view and drill down and and we will get as far as we can. So in very, very uh, easy terms, simple terms, Sci-Fi Foods is a company that is using cultivated meat made in a lab combined with plant-based ingredients to make a burger that does not involve um, animal agriculture. Um, or any live animals. And so it is a proposition that aims to make a satisfying beef burger uh, in a way that is much more environmentally friendly and that can scale to feed the growing, growing population on the planet. So that's definitely something that we've heard from a lot of the plant-based, lab-grown animal substitute products, Um, but this one is working a little bit differently. Um, And I'm going to let Kasha sort of jump in and and take it from here just because 
I don't want to inadvertently sort of misset the stage with not having a clear, clear view on what all this is. So Kasha, tell us in a nutshell, what makes the sci-fi, can we call it a sci-fi burger or sci-fi foods just because you're working on the burger right now? Yeah, let's call it a sci-fi burger. That's a great working name. Okay, great. So tell us how the sci-fi burger is particular and unique relative to all the other plant-based burger versions that are out there. Absolutely. So our um, whole motivation is to get cultivated meat to the market as soon as possible because as you have alluded to, your listeners know about the potential benefits of this new sustainable way of creating meat. Now, um, in order to get cultivated meat to the market, we have to solve a bunch of big problems. So today we know that um, plant-based meat has an issue and that is taste. So a lot of consumers don't continuously purchase plant-based meat because it's just missing that certain something that makes it taste like real meat. And that is what the majority of um, omnivorous consumers are going for anyway. So when we say when we say plant-based meat, we're talking about something that is um, essentially just a, a cooking or pack processed food process of using different plant ingredients to put together a patty that we're calling a burger. That's right. So um, plant-based meat is on the market today. You can buy it at restaurants or the grocery store. And generally, it's mostly uh, plant-based proteins with some um, other ingredients like flavors. Um, but generally, it's the majority of the product is um, isolated plant proteins. And oftentimes, these plant proteins are not something that you would find sort of just naturally existing in nature where you could go to your grocery store and buy some of these plant proteins. A lot of the plant proteins require their own process of extraction and creation to make the plant proteins to then make the plant-based burger. Yeah. So the plant proteins are in the plants. For for example, soy is a plant that is full of protein and um, true in order to get um, texturized soy protein, you do some processing of that soy bean, but that protein is there naturally. So it's nothing new. It's just processed in a way that gives it a new functional form. So you can uh, put it into a burger versus getting a bunch of edamame and putting it in a blender probably won't result in something that that looks or tastes like a burger. <laughs> That's funny. I'm picturing like the green smoothie right yeah, now. But it's just edamame, you know, it's, it's right. as a soybean and it's processed. Right. It's the pro- and the processing, I mean, just so that we can understand the difference between cultivated and plant-based and all those things. These different processes, are they, for the most part, new processes? It sounds like a lot of them are new processes for new things. Is it just putting them all together? Because they're very process-heavy, all of the plant-based things. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're, create, we're combining um, plant-based proteins together to create something that resembles meat. And so, yes, there is some processing involved to get those proteins in the right form. It's not particularly new. So um, there's been a lot of innovation in food, especially uh, the processing of soy since the 80s and 90s. So it turns out that a lot of um, uh, processed food um, actually contains soy proteins um, that you might not be aware of. And it helps the functionality of those foods. Okay. We love that. Things we might not be aware of. It's always nice to learn about those things. Okay. So we have the plant-based ingredients. Yeah. So, so, um, plant-based burgers, most, I'm sure everyone in the audience has tried one. Um, uh, in many ways they're great and they do have one issue, which is they don't quite taste like meat exactly. Um, which is definitely limiting the growth of that sector. And we, we want more people to buy plant-based because it's more sustainable. Now, Cultivated meat is this promise for the future, right? It's growing animal cells outside of the animal without all the land use and cruelty um, issues associated with um, industrial animal agriculture, um, as well as without the climate impact. Um, And that's something we're all really excited about. Unfortunately, the challenge for cultivated meat is cost. So mammalian cell culture, um, so growing animal cells outside of the animal is super expensive. And um, 
It's expensive because um, animal cells, if you take a cell out of a cow, it exhibits all these amazing behaviors that makes it a great cell to be in a cow, um, but doesn't really affect um, the flavor or nutritional profile of those cells. Um, but those behaviors actually make the cells really difficult and expensive to grow outside of the animal. So examples include um, uh, cells from an animal can only divide so many times before they lose steam. So maybe 20 to 40. And when you think about how many cell divisions you need to do in order to go through the entire cell culture process to get to a burger, it's more than that. So that's a challenge. Another issue is that animal cells uh, tend to only want to grow attached to other animal cells or surfaces. So that really limits your ability to grow them to two-dimensional culture, which is really in inefficient. We can talk more about that if you're interested. And then the final piece is inside of an animal, uh, cells require all these amazing signaling molecules like uh, growth factors that control the ability for those cells to grow. And it's actually really hard to provide those growth factors outside of the animal because those proteins are really expensive um, to produce and isolate. And so those are all these challenges with um, cultivated meat. And so at Sci-Fi Foods, we use um, uh, gene editing, um, so SynBio, to basically change all these behaviors and make um, animal cells that we can grow in a cost-effective way so they're actually cheap enough to be part of this food product. And for us, that means um, making cell lines that can divide indefinitely. It means making cells that are capable of popping off that two-dimensional surface and actually dividing in uh, liquid cell culture media, so the, the food in which the cells grow. Um, and we're also um, engineering our cells to not need all those expensive added growth factors. So we can end up growing our cells in something that's much more similar to Gatorade. And that really helps us reduce the cost of mammalian cell culture to the point where we can actually sell a burger that's cost competitive with conventional beef. Lots and lots and lots of things to talk about. The first one I think is, I mean, for me, a, a, a average person out there who's, you know, consuming media, maybe I'm a little more interested in the food tech space or the food space in terms of, you know, reading articles and, and following things. Going back to the beginning of sci-fi foods, what was it that made you decide that cultivating meat with plant-based ingredients was a thing that you needed to dedicate your current person, you know, your current professional career to? It, it doesn't seem like a very obvious idea. Um, from someone who's just sort of, you know, generally perusing like news and what's happening. Was there a, a catalyst or an impetus or the aha moment that was like, yeah, we need to work on cultivated meat. We need to, I need to be working on how to work with cow cells and DNA to make a better burger in a lab. Uh, that's a great question. So uh, I am a biologist by training, uh, so I have degrees in, in biology. I have an undergraduate degree and a PhD in biology, and I've been in the biotech sector for over a decade now, um, essentially working on problems in biomanufacturing and agriculture. So my career has been dedicated to essentially cellular agriculture, this idea that we can use cells to produce useful things for humans in a way that has a lot less impact than the conventional petrochemical processes. So I've spent my entire career thinking about how to use biology to, to create a more sustainable future. And, um, you know, cultivated meat is, is just part of that. Um, so you can use precision fermentation to make, you know, milk without a cow. Um, and you can use, um, uh, mammalian cell culture and synthetic biology to make burgers without the cow. Uh, so for me, it's just finding um, the next thing that might have a great um, impact. So I um, met Joshua March, our CEO and uh, co-founder, uh, about three years ago, and he pitched me this idea of cultivated meat. And um, based on my technical background, I really saw a huge opportunity to uh, use some of the modern tricks of our trade of synthetic biology to really 
um, get cultivated meat to the point where we can make it commercially viable. And, and that's really um, what's exciting to me is, is using science and technology, specifically biology, to create a more sustainable future. So this is, this is what I've been doing my entire career. And I hope to continue doing for the rest of my career. Well, I mean, it, you're certainly on the runway to do that. Definitely. Um, it doesn't, I don't think the category is going away of, you know, biology, science and solving food problems. That's definitely here to stay as, as long as there are people here to stay. Tell us about what you define as tricks of the trade and how you sort of honed in on the processes that you're working with now. I mean, when you say tricks of the trade, I'm sure it's apparent to you because this is your field of specificity. It's like talking to a chef about, you know, the current, you know, oh yeah, of course we cook sous vide and, you know, immersion circulators. It's second nature now. Um, but what does that mean for you? And how did you, were there particular things that were of interest to you that this project provided a direct line for you to continue to follow? Did you sit down with a question of how to do this and then arrive at as different solutions or? Yeah. Um, so that's a great question. So what do I mean by tricks of the trade? Um, I am talking specifically about um, molecular biology and genetic engineering. So, you know, since the 1970s, we've had uh, recombinant DNA technology, which basically means humans figured out how to uh, read DNA. So understand and, and understand what kind of DNA sequences are in uh, various plants and animals and microbes um, that are, are the instructions for how those cells work and then start making changes. And so I have degrees in biology. So part of my education was molecular biology as in uh, usually that means uh, manipulating DNA. And I've definitely um, done a ton of um, genetic engineering in my career for various reasons, including in school. Um, so those are the tricks of the trade. So today we have technology that basically lets us read, write, and alter DNA of organisms in order to give them new behaviors. And this is the next evolution of technology. So uh, before recombinant DNA technology, when we think about humans' tools to improve agriculture, it was all about you know, conventional agriculture. So breeding plants and animals to create new versions that have uh, better, um, better characteristics for, for human use. And today, uh, obviously, we can continue doing the conventional animal breeding, but now we have this opportunity to actually uh, go in and modify the DNA directly, which can result in plants and animals and food products that have um, the characteristics that we want. Genetic modification, that can be sometimes a like a hot button for yeah. certain people. Um, genetically modified food is definitely something that people can be uh, wary of or distrust or not want. I mean, I certainly note that on labeling on food in the grocery store, not genetically modified is one of those little, you know, label emblems that you can see that goes next to, you know, organic or, you know, no sugar added or, you know, any of those things. It, it doesn't, it doesn't sound, I mean, you know, when we think about when you use words like crossbreeding and agriculture, I mean, I think of things, when I think of genetic modification in terms of agriculture, I think of, um, you know, in the vineyards in France, when they would graft, you know, one vine onto another to make a blend of a type of grape or, you know, blending, you know, crossbreeding animals, or even, you know, today, I remember when the, um, you know, in, in modern times, contemporary times, you know, the honey crisp apple is something that was created somewhere in a lab that people love. And that's why it's more expensive because it's a, like a brand name apple with specific characteristics. So we have so many examples over time of genetic manipulation and, and modification that is desirable or even friendly or not an issue. Why do you think it is that, you know, we have, we have such a fear sometimes over genetic modification when it comes to food? My opinion on that is, uh, I think it's because people are generally unfamiliar with what it looks like and what it means. So if you're not, um, 
you're not familiar with something, it has this opportunity to be scary, right? And you can... Um, we fear the unknown. We fear yeah, the fear, unknown. It's, yeah. part of our, it's part of our human nature. That's right. Fear of the unknown. And you sort of imagine sort of all these um, uh, bad outcomes that could happen because we're doing something new. And I mean, that's the reality with all, all new technology, right? Uh, humans have been inventing all sorts of stuff from things like telephones to, to, you know, the printing press before that. And every time there's a new technological innovation, humans are very scared of like what the implications are going to be. Um, for me, because I am a scientist and I've been trained in biology and, and I've, I've spent my career um, gene editing things, it's not scary because I, I work with it physically and I understand what, what's happening. Um, for me, the reality is that it's a new technological tool that allows humans to continue shaping the environment around us in order to make us as happy and healthy as possible. And just like we've spent thousands of years figuring out agriculture, the idea that we can now use molecular techniques in order to um, edit GNA, DNA directly and accelerate our um, improvements in agriculture is a great thing. And um, I think, um, you know, it, it takes a lot of work to create um, a genetic modification that gives an organism an improved characteristic. So I know I know how hard it is, and then um, so basically everything, all the changes that we make in the improved, uh, you know, plants and animals or or whatnot, just takes a lot of effort to, to get there. So I just don't have this like fear of some kind of strange, terrible accident happening that would have negative consequences. And I think um, there's also, you know, if you're a scientist, you have the ability to think through on first principles, what can and can't go wrong and actually have pretty good confidence that you understand the risks. And again, if you aren't familiar with that kind of technology, then it's almost impossible to assess, right? So you just have this like fear response and you can list uh, all sorts of crazy things that could potentially go wrong. And if you don't have a lot of background, they all seem equally probable. Whereas if you ask a scientist, they'll be like, well, that makes no sense. That couldn't possibly happen. There's no mechanism by which this bad thing could happen. Therefore, I'm not going to worry about it. So I don't know if that uh, that answer is your question. Well, definitely we're influenced by, by media, whether that be theoretical, um, actual news that's presented as factual or media we consume that's fictional in the form of movies or novels or podcasts, um, or even maybe some things that sit in the middle of fiction and nonfiction. <laughs> um, and there's also, I think, just like movements of, of what people are looking for and, and trying to get to. Um, it, I, I will say, though, that nothing ever really happens of interest that's in the middle. That's like the middle path. All the interesting developments and news and, and progress and conversations happen at the edges where people are looking for something or at something that's different or, you know, very different direction from where we're all just kind of sitting casually, you know, on the day to day. Um, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk uh, more in depth about some of those uh, genetic engineering tools, namely CRISPR, which is fascinating, and that is definitely one of those like buzzy words and terms that people can just go crazy about. And I think the craziness has a lot to do with um, maybe more the fictional side of media and what we what we see on TV. But we're going to let the actual doctor explain to us what that really means. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick. 
with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. You are listening to Tech Bites, the weekly show on the Heritage Radio Network, where we look at the intersection of food and technology. And today that intersection is in a lab in California at a company called Sci-Fi Foods. If you are interested in taking a look at what they do, you can find them online, scififoods.com, S-C-I-F-I foods.com, on Instagram, at Sci-Fi Foods, and on Twitter, at Eat Sci-Fi. We are talking with Dr. Kasha Gora, who is co-founder and CTO of Sci-Fi Foods. She is also a biologist with a PhD from MIT who's been looking at biology, genetics, solving problems for a long, long time. It's really fascinating. And for her, all of this is just a day at the office. And for us, it's maybe something that we don't quite understand, but might be something that might be on our dinner table in a year from now. We were talking just before the break about all the possibilities of genetic engineering and genetic manipulation and what that has looked like over the course of time. And today that looks like something very specific. Uh, Today we're going to talk a little bit about CRISPR, which when Kasha and I spoke a few weeks ago, she described it as scissors for DNA, DNA scissors which was such a great uh, way to describe it because I can really visualize that very easily. I can visualize the DNA strand and then a pair of scissors just kind of coming in and going snip, snip. And then it seems so easy. Is that, is that, is it as simple as that? Uh, Yes. So it is uh, conceptually as easy as that, which is in and of itself a huge technological innovation because um, it's only recently in the last, uh, 10, 15 years that we've been able to uh, cut DNA wherever we want to with these molecular scissors. Before that, the technology uh, just didn't exist in this kind of easy uh, format. So it is a, it's a huge deal. Describe for us just very briefly from your point of view, what DNA looks like and how it is and, and why it's challenging to cut it. So um, DNA is a a biomolecule that basically encodes uh, the instructions for life. So just stepping back really quickly, there's this thing in biology called the central dogma of biology, and I won't bore your listeners, but I think the thing to remember is DNA, this molecule, encodes the instructions to make proteins, and those proteins do stuff. And so uh, between that system, we have our cells contain all the instructions that they need in order to make other cells and to do complex behaviors. Um, And so DNA is this complex biomolecule. Now, it's actually pretty easy to to cut DNA in random spots. So uh, things like, you know, sunshine and UV radiation will uh, result in some DNA damage. So cutting of DNA in your skin cells. And that's, you know, how humans can sometimes develop skin cancer. That can be bad. But for the most part, your cells are able to heal themselves and you wear some sunblock and you're mostly fine. Um, So um, randomly cutting DNA is pretty easy, but cutting DNA in a specific spot has been really, really hard. And uh, CRISPR-Cas9 is this like amazing, molecular scissors. So uh, the um, Cas9 is actually a protein that cuts DNA. And the amazing thing about it is um, that protein is actually guided by another kind of uh, molecule, RNA, uh, that has a sequence, so a bunch of um, specific information that matches information contained in the DNA and takes that pair of scissors and localizes it to the exact spot that we want to cut. And that's a a big deal because now we have control over uh, where we cut the DNA. And um, when DNA is cut, your cells really want to repair it, like the skin cell example. And um, when that repair happens, sometimes um, there's a little mistake. So you might accidentally delete one of the um, information molecules in DNA or add another one. They're called base pairs 
that's not super important. Um, but that little tiny change, one single nucleotide, so one little piece of this molecule can actually disrupt the function of a gene and then, you know, disrupt the function of that protein that it encodes and it totally change the behavior of the cell. And that's the technology we're using to um, change cellular behavior in ways that promote a sustainable food future and allow us to do this kind of cellular agriculture. So CRISPR is actually a protein. Yeah. which is a great thing and a very easy thing to understand. Yep. Uh, where does it come from? Yeah, so um, uh, CRISPR is actually, so Cas9, the protein, is found in many bacteria. It's part of this um, really cool system that they have for fighting off um, viruses. So um, long story short, um, these uh, uh, Cas9 proteins, the molecular scissors, um, can actually be targeted to cut up viruses that might infect, infect uh, bacteria. And in that way, they're kind of like an immune system that protects those bacteria. And so um, this was discovered a while ago as a naturally occurring phenomenon slash immune system in bacteria. Um, Nobel Prizes. Uh, yeah, we're going <laughs> to... Nobel Prizes. Excellent. Yeah. Um, and so, um, but... Um, uh, so that's a that's a cool mechanism, but it turns out that you can harness that um, for um, for engineering. So someone figured out like, hey, wait a minute, if the if the bacteria can use this to fight off specific virus sequences, maybe we can use this uh, to target other sequences, and um, that's really enabled this whole new era of genetic engineering because all of a sudden. We, we can really easily target the cutting to a very specific spot using this um, CRISPR-Cas9 system. And is the technology accessible to everyone? Um, anyone who has a laboratory. Um, I mean, it is molecular biology. Right, of course. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna go to Amazon and order some online at this stage, but I mean, just conceptually, the information, the availability of it, it's... Yeah. Um, yes, absolutely. So um, there are many biotech companies that provide, you know, reagents for biology and you can just go on their website and order uh, uh, Cas9. You can order the, the little guide RNAs that tell it where to cut. I mean, I'm sure there are, you know, fancy high school biology labs that are doing CRISPR editing. It's really widely available. The technology is used extensively in academia and it's used extensively in industry and it's absolutely available to the whole world, basically. Why do you think there are these sort of sometimes nefarious, you know, uh, conspiracy theory, negative reactions, things on social media, the internet around CRISPR? Do you think it's just sort of like the halo of sci-fi um, is it possible that with a technology like this, someone somewhere could be doing something nefarious with it? Or as a scientist, as you said earlier in the show, it's one of those things where, you know, for you, it's like, ugh, it's not even possible. What are you talking about? <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think with all technology, including social media, <laughs> yes. you can do nefar nefarious things, the modern, right? The modern printing press. Right. That's right. Uh, it's, mm -hmm. you know, it, as, as humans, we are very creative in using technology for good and, and bad. Um, I would say uh, one of the challenges of CRISPR and maybe why people get triggered is a potential application, which is very controversial. So, um, you know, editing humans and this whole like designer baby thing. So it is possible to use CRISPR Cas9 to modify DNA of humans. Obviously, we don't do that at Sci-Fi. We are just creating beef cell lines for burgers. And, you know, I'm not interested in creating superhumans at all. I think that has some serious ethical um, implications and um, I'm certainly not doing it. I mean, it is possible for somebody with a laboratory and um, all the equipment and know-how to, to do that. And I think that's a very important topic for uh, you know, society and uh, the nations of the world to tackle. But um, I think maybe that's the biggest hot topic use of um, CRISPR that makes people uncomfortable. Um, now, using CRISPR to make drought resistant corn or CRISPR to make sustainable beef burgers, I'm hoping that 
Um, if folks really understood the details, most of them really would not have any kind of issue with those applications. It's sort of the two sides to the coin, I think, with every piece of technology, right, that we've seen through time, both actually in our history as people and civilization, but also um, as just pro projected imagination in movies. Um, you know, all technology can be used for good and all technology likewise could be used for not good. I yeah. guess it comes down to simply that. And those, you know, good and not good or good and evil or good and bad, those are all adjectives with very personal definitions. They're not numerical, like it's 100. It's, you know, 100 is, is a number. We can count 100 pieces of something. We all know what that means and we can agree to that. But good and bad are, are so malleable and flexible and open to personal interpretation that I think that's also part of what makes things um, fluid and potentially, you know, a hot topic to one person and just a day at the office to another person. Yeah, that's right. So let's go back to the, now that we sort of just have a sense of what it is, um, let's go back to your sci-fi burger. So you have the plant-based burger base, base or medium or substrate or something like that. And then you have beef, cells that you're going to integrate with that to make it more beef-like for the burger. What attributes are you, and of course this goes without saying, you don't need to reveal anything that would be a company secret, but what sort of attributes are you looking for from the beef cells to put into the burger? And why is it that you think that it could only be attainable with actual beef cells versus some other methodology that might be easier and less expensive? Right. Um, well, we can tackle beef cells first as sort of this magic ingredient. Um, that's you know, your secret ingredient, right? Yeah, beef cells. Burgers. Beef cells, that's beef the cells. secret ingredient. <laughs> yeah, and, and we cultivate ours um, instead of uh, using animal-derived cells. And so... Um, you know, uh, food is complicated. Uh, meat is complicated. So there's all sorts of uh, flavor molecules in meat that make it taste very special, uh, which is why plant-based burgers usually, you know, don't quite exactly replicate conventional meat because they're they're just different types of cells. And so there's thousands and thousands of flavor molecules involved there. So using beef cells really lets you bring that whole complex flavor to the plant-based matrix. And so that's why we use the cells. Um, you can try to replace flavor one molecule at a time. So um, for instance, the Impossible Burger uses a uh, heme protein to sort of replicate some of the, um, the, the color change as well as the bloodiness of conventional um, beef. And, and that does a pretty great job making a differentiated product. Um, but that's just one slice of what animal cells bring. And so by using animal cells, we're able to really uh, capture much more of what is that essentially uh, meat flavor in, in the sci-fi burger. And so um, that's kind of why, why we use beef cells, because they're complex and amazing and they taste just like beef. Is it sort of like making meatloaf where you have your ground beef and then you're going to add in like maybe breadcrumbs or oatmeal and an egg and absolutely you know, basically on the top and like that kind of thing to sort of just make that like nice texture meatloaf which has a lot of different things going on is it sort of that idea it's totally that idea. It's basically, yeah, meatloaf or a meatball. Uh, humans have been blending meat with other ingredients for a long time, especially, um, you know, historically when we had less access to a bunch of um, cheap meat, uh, we would find ways to get the nutrition and flavor out of meat uh, in relatively small amounts in the context of, of different dishes. And I think meatloaf is just a great example of blending different um, ingredients in order to create this, you know, food product that has amazing characteristics and is like super, super, super yummy. Um, and so um, that's the strategy. We sort of started talking about um, cell culture and how expensive it is. So, so even using beef cells as an ingredient, um, if you um, use kind of conventional cell culture technology uh, from, you know, an R&D lab, it's, it's just too expensive. 
What does that mean, too expensive? What are we talking about in terms of dollars? Yeah, so if you had a grad student use um, sort of traditional bench scale cell culture to create a sci-fi burger, I believe it would cost something like ten or $20,000. The one burger? Yeah. It's mm-hmm. okay. very expensive. Yep. So that's ridiculous. Uh, obviously, we want to get more down to about a dollar a burger. Um, and so um, we kind of talked about some of the behaviors of cells that that make them really expensive to cultivate. So at Sci-Fi, we've used gene editing to create amazing beef cell lines that grow in bioreactors. Um, so a bioreactor is just a stainless steel tank, um, and it allow it's an environment for cells to grow. So you fill it with cell culture media. You can add more food or control the pH and temperature as well as how much oxygen is in there. And it just provides a great environment for the cells to grow. And so uh, it's completely analogous to the stainless steel tanks and processes used for brewing beer, for instance. So there you have a stainless steel tank. You fill it with, you know, uh, various mash and and, uh, other food for the yeasties. You inoculate with yeast and, and they do their magic. And so we're using a very similar approach. So growing um, cells, beef cells in these large stainless steel tanks. And um, we harvest those cells. And so the, to harvest those cells, all you do is you use gravity to separate um, the cells from the liquid cell culture media that they're growing in. And those cells are our flavor ingredient that we mix in the burger. That sounds like a lot, a lot of work. Sounds like a, a very complex process to get us to the sci-fi burger. Because essentially, if I understand correctly the process, you have a you have plant cells, which are very simple. You have the beef cells, which are very, very complex. So you're using technology and process to sort of streamline, to take out and simplify the beef cells that you need, both in terms of how they work and how you can grow them to make it as simple and efficient as possible so you can scale. Is that? Yeah. You know, I think um, I would argue that mammalian cell culture and growing animal cells in bioreactors um, isn't that complex. I mean, it's not very far off from growing yeast in bioreactors or the precision fermentation some companies are using in order to make, uh, you know, animal proteins without the animal. It's the same concept, which is if you develop an amazing cell line, you can put it in this bioreactor with some some known media, cell culture media, and it will grow great. And you can harvest that product and use it, use it as food. Um, and so the technology we use is to actually make those amazing cell lines that are capable of doing that. And we do that in the lab. Um, but the rest of, you know, once we have the cell line, it's 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 frozen, it's ready to go. And then that gets promoted to a manufacturing environment that basically looks like food manufacturing and fermentation anywhere else. So my point of view is that, you know, some of the details are specific, but it's actually not that complicated. Maybe just seems complicated from someone, from, you know, the average person who they're, they're you know, burger biology experience is going to be just bringing home, you know, some ground beef and maybe throwing it into a bowl and adding some stuff and making a burger. Um, It's hard sometimes to picture industrial manufacturing, even as you said, industrial manufacturing today in terms of how uh, a lot of the foods we eat are processed. So a question to you is in the arc of um, where you are now to what your desired outcome is in terms of, you know, streamlining the process, making it scalable. Are you halfway there, three quarters of the way there, almost there, 25% of the way there? (laughs) It depends on what your access is. (laughs) You know, I think we're we're more than halfway there in the sense that um, uh, beef cells don't want to grow in bioreactors in suspension. And so we spent the last uh, couple of years doing the work to develop those first of a kind cell lines, which I think is the biggest technical hurdle. And now we're doing the work to um, continue to improve those cell lines so that we meet our sort of goals on the economics of the process. So I think we are more than halfway there on our journey to getting down to cost parity. And we've overcome the biggest technological hurdles, but um, 
Today, uh, we grow cells in bioreactors, we create demo products, and they taste great. And so, uh, you know, we've proven that we can we can make a sci-fi burger that's that's really going to be attractive to consumers. And the work we're doing is to continue improving the price point, basically. So if everything goes to plan, and I know that's a, a very, very loaded statement, but if everything goes to plan more or less on your on your timeline, when would a consumer be able to purchase a sci-fi burger and have one? When are they going to be in, when would they uh, theoretically be in market? So our goal is to get to market by the end of 2024. So a couple of things have to happen in order to allow us to do that. Uh, Right now, we are actually building a pilot plant um, in order to be able to uh, make our sci-fi burgers in a USDA, FDA inspected space. And so that's actually going to be done by the end of this year. So that's great. And we're also um, in the process of going through uh, regulatory filing. So we need to take our cell lines through FDA approval uh, in order to be able to sell to consumers. And we're hoping to have um, the final okay by the end of 2024 sometime. And that's kind of a process. Um, We're really lucky that uh, two companies have already gotten pre-market approval from the FDA for cultivated meat. So that's um, Upside and Good Meat most recently. And so uh, we are just following in their footsteps uh, to submit to the FDA and get their approval. It's amazing that um, those categories have already been created and you don't have to be the icebreaker on those, which is, you know, certainly testament to where, where we are in terms of just food technology and all the different evolving options that are out there. I was describing, um, sci-fi foods and what today's show was going to be about to a friend the other day. And the person asked me if, a sci-fi burger was vegetarian or vegan because it didn't contain any formerly live cow. And I said, you know, that's an interesting question that I don't have an immediate answer for because I don't know if the technical definition of being a vegan or a vegetarian is just completely eating plants or eating non-animal, if it was a cell from an animal, but it's never been in an animal, is it not an animal? I mean, I'm fascinated by the idea of it um, and sort of what it means in terms of just this new category of food. Similarly, we did a show, I think it was last year, with a company in Singapore um, that is making lab-grown seafood. So a very different, you know, different company and different idea. Um, The commonality being using an existing um, animal or, you know, in this case, I think it was shrimp cell to grow something. But what, what are your thoughts about where these products of lab grown animal cells combined with plant-based sit in the like vegan vegetarian spectrum? That's a great question. And I think fundamentally this represents a new category. Yep, absolutely. Uh, I'm not Mm -hmm. quite sure it's vegan or vegetarian. I think, you know, um, the reality is um, that only about 5% of the U.S. population is vegan or vegetarian. And that number has been pretty steady for, for decades. Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. I would thought it would have been been higher and growing just based on what people say, you know, at dinner tables and in restaurants and what we sort of see in the media. So what is really growing is this concept of flexitarian. So oh, people okay. who eat vegan or vegetarian occasionally or for most of their meals, but do flex from time to time to eat various types of animal protein. Um and, and that's really um, actually a great segue because in many ways, that's that's the prime target market for these alternative products are, are flexitarians or omnivores, people who do eat meat or would eat meat, uh, but they're looking for a better alternative. Um, and so, you know, um, the goal fundamentally is to uh, give these folks a better alternative um, 
than conventional meat. Obviously, we're super happy for vegetarians and vegans to eat the sci-fi burger. And I think the question there is, why are people vegetarian or vegan? And so if your issue is animal cruelty or climate change, um, any of those things, then you might make the rational choice that the sci-fi burger is something you want to eat because it matches your values. Now, if you are vegan or vegetarian for religious reasons, or you don't like the taste of meat, then okay, maybe you just don't want the product. And that's okay, because I think the vast majority of consumers, about that 95%, do eat some amount of meat, and we'd like to be there for them with this product. That's a great differentiator in terms of identifying, you know, what is driving people's choices. Um, what drives people's choices, not just in terms of what they eat, but where they spend their money, the companies and things like that. And certainly the environmental idea and the environmental issues and companies, um, you know, making a point to try and run businesses that combat that, you know, that unto itself is becoming, you know, a top line decision-making point for many people. As just anecdotally, uh, when the Impossible Burger was just coming onto menus in New York City many years ago, I want to say it was like maybe even 2016 or something like that. Um, It was on the menu at a restaurant and I um, was speaking to a friend who was, what is, vegan. And I asked if they had gone to try the Impossible Burger and the answer was yes. I said, well, what'd you think? Did you like it? Are you going to eat it? And the response was, it was too much like beef. I didn't like it because it was like the sensation of eating beef and I don't want that. So I thought it was interesting that it was perhaps such a good replica that someone who didn't want to eat meat didn't want to eat it because it was too much like meat, which was interesting, um, even though there's no meat in it or around it at all. Um, Another thing, just because the Impossible Burger is one of, you know, the first ones out and we have, you know, a lot more information about it, it's not gluten-free. So there's, we're, you know, a bunch of different people who I knew, who I know who would have maybe been interested in a non-animal product, but the gluten issue was a barrier for them. So there's all these these things that swirl around, I think, these new types of foods, you know, plant-based, what type of animal component they have, and then to your point, why people make the decisions to eat the way that they do. Um, are you eating that way? Are you vegetarian, pescatarian? vegan, um, omnivore, carnivore, um, for religious, social, economical, culinary, fitness, environmental reasons. And then, you know, you sort of evaluate from there on down. Um, it's a lot of information though, for consumers today, it's almost too much information. Um, I think, and maybe sometimes people resort to, I'm just going to, you know, buying simple food and eat it at home because it's almost too much to get involved with sometimes. It can be a little overwhelming, I think. Do you do you feel that way or think that sometimes when you I mean you you have a very specific view on this new category and an intrinsic understanding that the rest of us don't have. But I'm sure you, you know, read the news and go into a, a shop to buy coffee and you're confronted with, you know, 17 um, potential milk slash non-milk options, you know, just as an example. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm a normal human and a consumer of food, like all, all other humans that are alive. Um, uh, I certainly eat the sci-fi burger at work. And so that's, that's been a really amazing opportunity to, uh, be in this role and, and be doing product development. And obviously we've done an internal safety assessment and we have informed consent. So when I taste the sci-fi burger, it's, uh, with full knowledge of what I'm eating, uh, before we get FDA approval. Um, and it, it tastes great. So I'm always astounded every time I taste it, how much it tastes like conventional beef. And I love a good burger. I, um, don't really cook burgers at home. I will from time to time go to In-N-Out and get myself a treat, which is an In-N-Out burger. Yep. And that, that is a treat for, and for, for most of us, we don't have it out in the East coast. So it's an extra treat. If you, you guys can get Shake Shack. That's great too. <laughs> That's true. They're, but they're different though, you know, and I have to say just as a complete, complete, you know, side note in left field, the only oper- one of the last opportunities I had was out in Las Vegas where I had Shake Shack and In-N-Out Burger side to side because they're both on the strip. 
and it's sort of like a perfect convergence <laughs> and you can see which one is better. And there is one that's better, but I'm not going to say it because I'll just let people experience it for themselves. But if you, you know, have an opportunity to do them side by side, do them side by side. Jennifer, I'm going to argue with you. I'm not sure one is objectively better. I think one is subjectively better depending on who you are. <laughs> Josh and I have an issue because he thinks Shake Shack is better and I think In-N-Out is better. And I, I think we're both right. <laughs> well, and then at some point in the near future, you can put down the sci-fi burger and have like the burger A, B, and C. And then well, C yeah, the sci-fi burger is the best because we have a great food science team who whips it up and I get to eat it at work. So that's, that's pretty amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, but I mean, I, I tend to eat um, what I think is healthy food. So for me, I think vegetables are great for you. <laughs> Um, and so I try to eat a mostly plant-based diet. Um, I also, uh, I like to weight lift and I want to support my like muscle health. So I will drink a protein drink, um, daily in order to make sure that I'm getting enough protein. Um, but I don't mind processed food as, um, treats. And so, you know, if there's some Cheetos somewhere and I'm feeling it, I'm going to eat those Cheetos. And I know it's a highly engineered food full of lots of technology. Um, I know that it can be part of a perfectly fine, healthy diet. And from time to time, like I eat my in and out I'm going to eat my Cheetos or whatever modern marvel of food uh, that is available to me. And I feel great about that. And I feel like it's really con consistent with um, my health and wellness journey. And I feel good about what I eat in general. Do you think, where do you think that uh, Cheeto technology is the same as sci-fi burger technology. It's all just food tech. Is there any difference to it? I mean, obviously you're, you're doing something on a molecular level that's very different, but just in terms of just the idea of I'm eating a completely processed food. You know, I don't think it's that different or, I mean, to me, it's not different at all. Uh, the technology that goes into all processed foods that we eat today, by the way, Hey, they're all developed in labs, just so you know. Mm -hmm. So your Cheetos are lab developed and they're manufactured in a production facility. And, you know, we develop cell lines in a lab, but those are manufactured in a food production facility. Um, so it's, it's, it's no different at all. It's just part of the food landscape that's available to modern humans. Uh, you know, those Cheetos are, I believe, made with corn. I'm sure it's GMO corn. And that allows us to have, you know, better productivity and yield where, where, where we, you know, cultivate corn in fields. Do I have any issue with that? Absolutely not. It's fascinating. One is okay. One's not okay. We like this. We don't like this. It, it is very subjective. Um, we are out of time. And, uh, you know, I still have so many questions to ask about the sci-fi burger, which we didn't even get to. Like, where does it sit nutritionally up against a regular beef burger and like all those kinds of things? And we're going to have to save all of that maybe for another time. Maybe we'll have to have you come back to talk more about this or as you get closer to public launch, which is exciting. Um, really quickly before we go, any, any last uh, top line thoughts about sci-fi burgers and CRISPR and lab-grown burgers. What's the one thing you want people to know? The one, one thing. I mean, we're here to make meat the world can depend on. And uh, I think cultivated meat can be great. It can be great. It can taste great. It can be great for the environment. It can uh, be great for animal welfare. And to be optimistic and open-minded and most importantly, give it a try. See if you like it because that's our that's our whole point is to make a product that people are going to really enjoy and crave. And so you don't have to choose. You can just buy something that's tasty and also know that you're doing a lot of great things by doing that. Okay. Well, I want to thank Dr. Kasha Gora, co-founder and CTO of Sci-Fi Foods for coming on and talking about her work in the lab for cultivated beef cells and plant-based burgers coming to you maybe at the end of 2024. We'll look out for that and follow the news of the ever-evolving FDA new categories of things. It's a really interesting time right now that we live in. There are so many things happening in the world. Um, so many things happening in the world, so many things we need to try and understand. And hopefully the past oh hour or so that you spent with us today on Tech Bytes will help you understand a little bit um, of what CRISPR is, genetic engineering, and what they do at Sci-Fi Foods. 
if you like this show, come back and listen next week. If you love it, go to your favorite podcasting platform. Give us a good review. Follow us. It'll help more people discover the podcast. If you think conversations like this are essential and we absolutely need to have them, not just to listen to today, but to have in our archive of over tens of thousands of shows, go to heritageradionetwork.org, click the beating heart and make a donation. We're a 501c3 nonprofit. We keep the lights on and the mics hot out of the generosity of our listeners, people like you. So we can make more radio, we can tell more stories, and hopefully that will lead us all to a more delicious and equitable world. I'm Jennifer Leutze, and this is Tech Bites. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.